On this edition of the Scott Thompson Show podcast with me, Scott Radley, sitting in for the other Scott, we're talking about TV and the Olympics. Ratings were horrible to start with, but hey, look at that. They're starting to take off a little bit. They're starting to improve. Could it be because Canada is now winning medals? Hmm. Interesting. Probably. Uh, we're going to talk about the Ontario flag which you may be entirely agnostic about or benign towards. You may not even think about the Ontario flag ever, but some do. And some are saying it needs to change and not just for aesthetic reasons. We'll explain what those are and what the real reasons are. And we're talking scotch. Grab yourself a goblet, pour yourself a cool one or a warm one or a neat one or however you take it and sit down. We're going to talk. It's National Scotch Day. We're going to discuss the drink after this. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show here on 900 CHML. Scott Radley in for the vacationing Scott Thompson this week. Thanks for being with us today. Glad you are along. Not sitting outside today, so glad you're along wherever you are. Uh, We have got a full slate. Oh, by the way, by the way, a reason to celebrate today. Today is National Scotch Day. Yes, indeed. We're going to talk about scotch later in the show. So, you know, celebrate accordingly and responsibly. Nonetheless, we will get to some scotch talk later in the show. First, however, this hour, the Olympics are on. As you know, I'm assuming by now that you have been watching some and that you know what's going on with Canada, that you've seen some medal wins, uh, that you've stayed up late maybe to catch something it's tough it's tough with the time difference but it's there's no no shortage of ways to watch i can't count the number of channels as you go through the guide that have olympic stuff on they don't make it very clear what sports they just say olympics as we talked about yesterday on the show but you flip around and you'll find something that you like now the downside of what's been happening is early on opening ceremonies and first few days ratings were not so good. Ratings were pretty bad. In fact, however, it seems as though things are beginning to turn a corner. Bill Briou is a TV writer. The guy behind Briou TV. Love having him on here. Bill, how are you today? Hi, Scott. It sounds as though, we may be, as I say, turning a bit of a corner and the Olympics may be catching a bit of traction. What's happening? Yeah, and, you know, it's not surprising. Uh, you know, the Olympics are being held in Tokyo. It's a 13-hour time difference to our region. And uh, so, yeah, if, unless you're getting up at 7 a.m., uh, you're not really watching these huh. games live. Um, but CBC, which is the host broadcaster, they've got... Um, primetime replays every night at seven starting at seven o'clock and you know scott like i'm up north now at a cottage and 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 the canadian press asked me to cover the first few days and write the story that's in today's toronto star and other places on the ratings and um you know so i'm here at a cottage that barely has uh, plumbing let alone uh, cable <laughs> and, and so and to, to just use my phone as a hub and to stream the games to watch it on cbc.ca or the CBC app, uh, and to watch the video highlights that are there on their menus, the playback anytime. That's the modern way. And so really, um, when you add up all the digital streams and everything else, there are a lot of people watching these Olympics. 
One of the interesting things about this is because of the time difference, we have heard, Bill, and you've probably written this a million times, it's, it's a, a almost a mantra on television that the one type of TV, the one thing you can broadcast that people will not PVR, they'll watch it live, which gives it the advertising money, is sports. People want to see sports live. And even if you tape a Leaf game or something and then you come home, you go, oh, I'm not going to watch it. I kind of know what the result is. This seems to be what they're doing, flying a little bit in the face of that, because we know what the results are before you're watching it. And yet, as I say, the the num- fact that the numbers are going up, people are being willing to watch something they already know how it turned out. Yeah, and it's fascinating because in the U.S., NBC has had the rights to many, many of the Olympic Games for 20-odd years, I think, at least. And uh, they always pretend they're live. You know, they start their coverage at 7 or 8 o'clock, and they, uh, the, it's always um, not spoken who's won yet. They, they just run it as if it's live, and it's worked for them. You know, they've always managed to pull 20 million people to watch games Um so, you know, I think Canadians will watch Canadians winning medals, right? I think even if you might have heard that Penny Oleksiak or, or uh, Maggie McNeil have won a silver or gold, you're going to want to see it. You want to see the reaction, even if they're wearing masks, even if they're putting the medals on themselves, even if it's a little bit different. There is, though, something, uh, maybe just my opinion, but I don't think it's probably just me. There is something... I don't know what the right word is. I'm, I, maudlin comes to mind. That's not the right word, but about watching these athletes perform in empty stadiums. It, there's something just so wrong about what we're seeing. It's so different and so not right with the visuals of what we're seeing in the background. Yeah, you're right. But I, I think that Canadians got a taste of that on the recent Stanley Cup playoffs. You got a little used to watching big red canvas stretching over Montreal Canadian seats and things like that. Um, but to see the opening game is where it was really pronounced at the Olympics because you they built a 68,000 square seat uh, uh, arena and there's only 1,000 people in it. So this big empty arena, it looked like a rehearsal and all that pageantry kind of fell flat because it's designed to play to a, a live audience and get wows and there's no one there. So yeah, stuff like that. But then you have other venues or other events where uh, if you're watching rowing, say, or uh, yeah. uh, things, you know, there's just people in the water rowing. You, know, you don't see any empty seats, uh, and that looks all right. If you're watching the Canadian Beach Volleyball, you know, it does look odd. There's You can see the empty seats. But frankly, uh, viewers are probably so distracted by the fact that the competitor's attire is so skimpy, it's <laughs> as skimpy as the stadium attendance, that you're not really looking at the empty seats. You know, it's funny you mentioned that because um, there was an interesting story the other day where the uh, the person in charge of gender equity for the games, I didn't even know that was a job now, but it is, um, has spoken out very strongly saying, we are really angry with the media for the sexualization of the athletes. And, uh, you know, there may be something to that. On the other hand, I'm not sure, is it the media that's to blame for that? Or is it the sports themselves for demanding certain outfits be worn? Yeah, I mean, from what I understand, there were teams that wanted to put on shorts and change the uniform and the Olympic organizers said, no, you got to wear these very skimpy, uh, the bathing bikinis. And even uh, from what I understand, pink, the singer has offered to pay for shorts for teams that want to cover up. So, uh, it sounds a little hypocritical to me that they're complaining about these images. 
Well, and again, not to be, um, not to get ourselves in trouble here, but I, I really do believe that there may be some ratings that are generated by some of these sports as well that, um, you know, let's not, let's not kid ourselves that there are probably people who are not necessarily giant beach volleyball fans, let's say, but that find themselves to find their way onto that channel and decide to stick around and watch that. I, I don't think we can ignore that part. Yeah. And I'm sure the Olympic officials are, are fine with us talking about these skimpy suits that the athletes are wearing and not talking about, the fact that, uh, you know, there's only 34% of people in Japan have had even the first vaccination shot or that there's all these empty seats or that there's so many people wearing masks. You know, that was that was the worry going into the Olympics that they were going to be canceled again. And it was really all the advertising commitment, the hundreds of millions of dollars that probably swayed everything from going forward. So there's other issues here that are much bigger mm. than the bathing suits, obviously. I thought the hardest thing to do for as a performer during COVID with no audience might have been going on, say, America's Got Talent and being a comedian where nobody was laughing. There was no crowd to feedback to give you a sense of whether you're doing well. But I think now when we see some of these athletes going back to the crowds, when you're performing and there isn't that roar, there isn't the buzz, there isn't the energy in the place, I really think that takes away from... Well, the adrenaline, but just the the atmosphere that we get off the TV and that sense of energy coming out of the TV into our living room. Yeah, but again, I think it depends on the event. I mean, uh, it, it, they do pipe in some crowd noise and they try to create atmosphere the way that they did during the Stanley Cup and NBA finals. Um, but, you know, if you look at these athletes in the pool, uh, Penny and, and uh, Maggie McNeil, they're boy, you know, the, the fact that in that final lap uh, that they're swimming their hearts out and setting records, that they can't hear the crowd anyway. You know, they're wearing a mm. bathing cap and they're in their heads in the water. So it just depends on the event. I think what to me is fascinating is seeing there was a cyclist from Canada who uh, competed on the first day climbing up Mount Fuji, like a crazy 200 and some odd kilometer race. Right afterwards, he's got to put on a mask to be interviewed by somebody who has a microphone on the end of a long pole. And how could you even breathe after doing that? And this guy was <laughs> yeah. just calmly answering the questions. I thought, wow, this talk about being an athlete. That's amazing. Well, Bill, I know that your level of fitness would be similar. So you would have been able to do the same thing. If I'd made you run 200 kilometers before doing this interview, no problem. Scott, I'm winded just talking to you. <laughs> <laughs> You know, there were there was discussion before these games that because there were not going to be fans, that NBC or CBC or the host broadcaster or whomever should add computerized crowds to make it look full. Was that a terrible idea or would that have worked? You know, I guess you can gimmick it up, but um, I think that people are used to empty seats now for uh, for live major events. We've had a year and a half of it. I don't think people find it that jarring. I mean, uh, you know, it's not just in the world of sports. If you've watched the Oscars or the Emmys or the Grammys, these shows are just conceived differently now. There's a lot more taped segments. Uh, there's a lot more one-on-one. Now, the audiences have half the audiences left for a lot of these things. So that's going to happen. But, um, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, you've seen in baseball where they have cardboard cutouts of fans. Yep. To me, that looks more distracting than if there's empty seats. 
Is anything being lost by the fact that the hosts are in Toronto in a studio as opposed to in a built studio on the grounds looking over Tokyo or something? Is there any difference now with the way they're doing it, hosting the show? Yeah, th- there's differences for sure. There's CBC has less boots on the ground. Uh, you know, Adrian Arsenault from the National, she was in Tokyo reporting, but uh, Scott, the, the uh, host, the main host, of the Olympic Games for CBC, um, he's in Toronto at a, at a studio. But really, you know, that that's fine. We don't need him right there all the time. I think uh, a lot of the commentary. If you're watching a Toronto Blue Jays game now, the play-by-play is done by a couple of guys watching it on a TV screen because the Blue Jays aren't even in Toronto. <laughs> you know, so um, this this has been part of the norm, the new norm, and I think audiences have just gone with it and i expect that this will become the norm because i think if you're one of the broadcasters and you're looking going away we can send all these people over there and build a new studio that costs us you know a million bucks or whatever uh and we can get basically the same results from being in a studio in toronto that we don't have to do anything to except put a new facing on Uh, I would be shocked if going forward in future Olympics, unless they are, say, in Canada or close to us in the States, I'd be shocked if this changes. Yeah, I I think you're right. I think that the big winners of these games will be the accountants. That that is different. And um, I think, you know, if you look, remember back um, 10, 11 years ago, the Vancouver Games, you know, Canadians with the, the budget, the money spent by the networks was astronomical. But so were the ratings, and, and it was our games, and people were really, Canadians watched like no other TV show before. So uh, if the games are being held halfway around the world, are you going to make those kind of investments, especially during a pandemic? No. And uh, I'm sure that will be changes will be made in future games. So because there were so many differences this year without the crowds, and we're not going to go back to that, but because there were, weren't the crowds and there were different things that were happening – should this have been the Olympics that the networks tried a bunch of new, inventive, out-of-the-box things to see if it would work? You know, like like the XFL did once upon a time when they were calls for that league or or other things. Was this the opportunity to try a bunch of stuff? Well, the, the Olympic committees are always introducing um, sports that are much more first of all, TV-oriented, and second, youth-oriented. So the big draws, if you were streaming these games so far, if you were watching on an app, uh, if you were you know, just um, watching it digitally, the, the, the number one and two draws are not like swimming or uh, you know, track and field hasn't come up yet, but the, the traditional sports, it's surfing and it's skateboarding. And that's because huh. that's what younger viewers, people you, who are grew up with YouTube and watching things four or five minutes at a time, they're watching videos of the Olympic events that that are cool. And, and those are the two that surfing, you know, that's different as an Olympic event. But, you know, there's an audience for it, and that's going to dictate what happens. Yeah, and, and I was that's for sure. I mean, that they are bringing in these new events and, and lots of new streaming options. I know that CBC's streaming is available on Amazon Prime and, and other yeah. places. Mm. I'm wondering about the literally the broadcast idea of interesting or inventive or different things, you know, like one thing that came to mind, I was talking with someone the other day, 
you know, who's the greatest swimmer of all time? You're going to take Mark Spitz or Michael Phelps or someone and superimpose yeah. them on to see how today's swimmer does against or, or Usain Bolt when track comes up or find something that is something we've never seen before. And I thought this may be the games where you have a chance to do that with the extra space and with a need to try and get people to watch. But I haven't seen a whole lot that's been inventive. It's been very familiar. Well, Scott, those are outstanding ideas. You should be in the booth. Uh, you know, I, I think that's pretty cool. Um, I guess, you know, maybe, um, as you say, that cost money to innovate sometimes and uh, the budgets are different now and maybe that's part of it. Um, I do say that when you're watching even like cycling or soccer, you know, if you've got two, three people top in the booth, that's sort of all you want. You know, like you don't maybe want it gimmicked up. Uh, you just want the games, right? So there, there's an argument that it can get a little too fussy, like way back when Fox Network started covering hockey and they put a yep. red tail on the puck. <laughs> you know? Yep. Uh, and everybody in Canada went, oh, please. So, um, but but I, I mean, I like the idea of sort of comparing athletes from different generations. That'd be really cool. Speaking of former athletes, do former athletes, former Olympians, former whoever, do they make the best analysts and interviewers? Because that seems to be the the pattern. That seems to be the choice. Yeah, if you're watching these games, if you're watching the CBC coverage, uh, if a uh, you know someone who was a, a grandmaster, a former Olympian, they're the one that's commentating on the cycling or uh, you know other things. I've been watching. Um, um, the, the beach volleyball. Uh, these are people who have played it who know the game. And sure, that's a, a tremendous advantage, I think. But they also have to be able to explain it to the rest of us and not take for granted that we understand all the terminologies or what's really out or in uh, with beach volleyball. I mean, uh, you know, but, but I have to say hats off to them, especially considering I believe a lot of these folks are watching it off a monitor from Canada. And they're they're not there on the ground. They can't really see everything that's going on. But um, it it hasn't been noticeable to me so far. It feels like they've just been as much in the loop as they would be if they were there. Just before I let you go, we're short on time here. Um, there was a, a really interesting story that was picked up a couple places about the fact that China is apparently watching very closely for any criticism of Chinese athletes or Beijing or anything. And they are really br mentioning it and really stamping on anything that would be critical. I'm wondering if this is sending a chill towards what we'll be able, what what broadcasters and media will do when they get to Beijing for the Winter Olympics, if this is going to send the message that, you, that we're going to look at the Olympics differently or not be willing to be critical for fear of being slammed. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's an interesting uh, question. You know, I mean, these games are being held in Tokyo, uh, it's a nation that's taken a hammering, you know, about 10, 11 years ago, they had a nuclear meltdown, one of their plants. And um, so in Tokyo, from what I understand, you know, they're really looking at these games to restore pride and, and um, international reputation. Much as they did in 1964, Tokyo hosted games then. And, you know, that was 20 years after World War II. And that, when you look back, that game was a real shot in the arm. There was a lot of pride for the Japanese to have showcased um, their nation so well then. So yeah, every, nobody wants a black eye from the Olympics. And um, 
But the Chinese are notorious, of course, for controlling media and message, and uh, they're going to continue to do that, it looks like. Um, uh, and, and, yeah, it might be limiting for people trying to cover and report. Bill Briou, uh, you can find him on Briou.tv. You can uh, see his stuff with Canadian Press about the Olympics right now. Bill, always love having you on. Thanks for doing this today. My pleasure, Scotland. And send the CBC your ideas on all those athletes and charts. <laughs> yeah. I love it. I'm, sh- I'm sure they would be inexpensive to do. Uh, Bill, <laughs> thanks very much for doing this. Thanks. Take, Take care. Bye-bye. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Now, I assume that most of you, if you close your eyes, you don't even have to close your eyes necessarily, but you can picture the Ontario flag in your mind. You have a pretty good idea. You know, there are some provinces that I have, I couldn't do that. Now, maybe it's because we live here. There are some provinces that their flags are very memorable or very visual, very clear to us. I mean, the Quebec flag, everyone knows the Quebec flag. You can picture that one. Can you picture what BC's flag looks like? But Ontario, uh, you can probably picture the Ontario flag. And here's the thing for many of you, I'm guessing, probably. It's a flag you don't really think about that often. If you drive by Queens Park or some other place, you'll see it flying, but it's really a non-factor. It's really a not a big part of your life. It's there and it's there. However, not everyone looks at the Ontario flag and feels that it is appropriate or feels that it is right. There are people who believe that it's time for a change to the Ontario flag and not just because they don't necessarily like the design because of deeper reasons with the Ontario flag. Mano Majumder is uh, is a man who has started a petition. He's based in London. Uh, he started a petition to get the Ontario flag changed. Uh, Mano Majumder joins us now. Mano, thanks for doing this today. Appreciate it. Hello. Uh, thanks for having me. Why do we need a new Ontario flag? We need a new Ontario flag uh, because of how this flag was brought into place and what it represents. Um, The Ontario flag simply isn't a very good flag to start with, and I don't think it represents uh, sort of the creativity or the diversity of our province very well at all. And and a good way to think about what kind of flag we could have instead of it is to uh, think of some of the better flags in the world, starting with the flag of Canada itself. Okay, so there's two different things there. Let's let's do the easy one first, which is you, you refer to it's not a very good flag, which I assume means design, aesthetics. Uh, wh- why is our flag not a good flag that way? So, well, let's start, with, let's start with the flag that is a good flag. In fact, it's an outstanding flag, which is the Canadian flag, right? It's everything a flag should be. It's iconic. And just design-wise, it's very distinct from every other flag in the world. It's very memorable. Uh, it's inclusive, and it's very minimalist and beautiful the brand that Canada should have. Now, if you look at the Ontario flag, not distinct, there are dozens of similar red ensigns around the world. Everywhere the British Empire went, there was a red ensign to follow, including Manitoba. Non-inclusive, basically celebrates uh, Ontario's former status as a colonial state. It's unmemorable. I think most Ontarians actually couldn't describe it or draw it. If they really came down to it, they couldn't tell you everything that was on the flag. And it's actually not beautiful. It this is not um, this is not just me saying it. There was a survey by the North American uh, Vexillological Association, that's flag enthusiasts and experts, uh, done in 2001, where they ranked all the state and provincial flags in the U.S. and Canada. And Ontario came right at the bottom alongside Manitoba for Canada. 
So the two red ensigns got right at the bottom for not being very special. And if we're going to have a flag at all, there's no rule that says we should have a flag. If we're going to have a flag at all, that's a really good one that represents our province. That, I think, as I say, that is the easy part because I'm quite positive that's not, that design is not the only reason that you are pushing for this. And, and you mentioned the other part, and I think the the loaded word when you, when you explained it before might have been the colonial past. Uh, talk from your perspective, what would be the, what's the problem symbolically with the Ontario flag? So if you look at the Ontario flag, you've got the uh, Union Jack on the top left. It's called the Canton of the flag. And the Canton typically uh, demonstrates or represents domination of one country by another. So wherever the British went, you've got red and blue ensigns across the world. Australia has it, New Zealand has it. And it essentially says this is part of the empire or this is you know subservient to the empire. And that's simply not Ontario's truth anymore. Um, Canada itself used to have a red ensign at the national level. It was kind of never official flag, but a de facto flag. And when Canada switched over to the maple leaf, um, a lot of people didn't want that change. They didn't want a change to a more inclusive flag that showed Canada as a distinct sovereign nation. So Ontario's flag was actually adopted by the government of that time in the 60s as a reaction Canada's flag. It was a it was a rejection of what Canada was becoming as as a country with its own uh, identity. So I think both for that history and for what that flag represents, uh, we ought to move on to uh, a different flag. I had one person write into me, um, an Indigenous person, who I think put it even better than better than I can, um, and she said, "People should consider what we see uh, when we look at a flag." that is colonial. The suggestion, if I'm reading right, and tell me if I'm not interpreting this right, but the suggestion would then be that Ontario's, the heritage from Britain, the the, the colonial part, whatever you want to call it, but the British heritage in Ontario is something that on balance is bad, that we should not be remembering or honoring or celebrating or marking. Is that your, is that what you're saying? I like to draw a distinction between heritage and a political bond. So one example I like to give is that of the Declaration of Independence, in which the uh, the Americans called the British their brethren and then still said, we just don't think we should have a political bond with you. So by all means, we, are, we have the British heritage. It's part of our heritage. It's not the only, obviously, cultural influence in Ontario and starts with indigenous. There's British, there's French, and there's others. Um, this is not a rejection of British heritage. This is a rejection of a certain state and a political history uh, that Ontario has moved on from, except in this one symbol. And additionally, I think there's also a distinction to be drawn between uh, remembering and celebrating or honoring, as you put it. Obviously, we are going to remember the entire history. Uh, that's not going to be different. But which part of that history we choose to pick and represent on what is a shared symbol of the state is a very particular decision that we have to make. And I think the symbol that we have chosen doesn't represent the best part of our history. One word you haven't used, and you may be not using it carefully, I'm not sure, but is uh, is racism. Is, is Is that part of this? Is there a belief that that part of the history has a racist element? Well, the empire was um, well. The empire was predicated on the idea that one 
nation should dominate others. Um, and it's not as simple uh, as race as we understand it today necessarily, because obviously a lot of the places where the British Empire went, um, you know, where their own neighbors, right? It, it, uh, the, the Union Jack is not well received in a lot of places, uh, even in the United Kingdom, including places like, you know, Scotland and Ireland. So it's not as straightforward as that, but certainly there is some overlap uh, between kind of romanticizing a colonial past and then people's opinion of who is a real Ontarian and who is not. Uh, it's quite amusing. I've had a lot of, amusing and bemusing, I should say, uh, I've had a lot of reactions uh, to this petition, and some of them are quite hostile. And some of them actually try to justify this in terms of who was here first, in terms of, oh, the British were here first, um, and I'm not sure they're including indigenous history when they think of it in those terms. So, heritage well, and I know, yeah. and, and Mano, I know that, uh, I mean, you have received some racist backlash from this I've heard for launching your petition, and I'm sorry for that. I mean, look, whether we agree or disagree, whether people listening agree or disagree, surely we can be better than to reduce it to that. And I, you know, I, I'm sorry that you've dealt with that again, whether we agree or disagree, that shouldn't be happening what about the idea? Now, there are some people who would look at this flag and say, well, I like, I don't see our our history as being racist or problematic. In fact, I like our links to Britain. I like the fact that that was our history. Are they wrong or, or old-fashioned or is their time passed or what do we say to them? I think that time has passed. I think the links that we try to maintain symbolically with the old empire are a polite fiction, but they are a fiction. And I have seen in some of these emails, and I think that the hostility is not, you know, purely related to race. A great amount of it is simple inertia. The original maple leaf flag also got a lot of hostility when it was introduced. Uh, the other theme I'm seeing is this very self-contradictory form of patriotism. So people are kind of defending the existing flag by claiming to be Canadian patriots. But I have never seen a form of patriotism that is defined as having one's own country be shown to be subservient to another country. I, I think our, our cultural links with uh, Britain are going to exist. Our, you know, when we change the red ensign at the federal level, Canada didn't suddenly you know, cease to be uh, culturally uh, very close to Britain. Uh, we just said that you know, we are not simply an outpost or a franchise of Britain. We are a sovereign nation. We are your equals. We have our own identity and status. And this is a relationship between equals. So I don't think anything has to change in terms of how people choose to identify themselves. Of course, people are free to identify themselves however they want. But this flag is not an individual decision. This is a shared public symbol. And not all Ontarians, including those of British heritage, um, feel that there should be a political bond or a symbolic bond even between Ontario um, and Britain. There was one commenter that I particularly uh, recall who wrote in who said, look, I am, uh, you know, I'm a person of British heritage. My ancestors were United Empire loyalists, but I just think of myself as Canadian. And to me, the Union Jack is a flag of a foreign country. And, I think and you know, I take your I take your point on that one, Mano, and when you said a few moments ago that, you know, patriotism, we usually don't uh, attach ourselves to another country to be patriot. That's an interesting point. 
the flip side of that, I suppose, would be that just yesterday we swore in a new governor general. We are still a constitutional monarchy. We still have ties. Our governance still is linked to Britain, uh, even if only in a lot of ways symbolically. But that is still our reality. It is our reality, and that's what the petition is for. You know, citizens petition their state to change the reality that they feel uh, we should move on from. And this is not us alone. I was doing some research on this, and a former Australian prime minister, uh, Paul Keating, said that, uh, you know, I don't think we can ever express the full sovereignty of Australian nationhood while we have a flag with the flag of another country on the corner of it. So this feeling is something that, you know, across the world in other countries that are in a similar, other places that are in a similar situation. Um, and I suppose uh, part of it is simply inertia. People kind of put symbols at the bottom of their list. And Canada should be proud that we were one of the few places in the world that actually took the step to create a flag of our own and start creating an identity of our own in the federal level back in the 60s. Uh, this was a step backwards um, along with that step forward. And I think it's time we corrected that error. Do you think the timing of your petition and of moving forward with this, is this a, a brilliant bit of timing? And I'm not asking you to brag. I don't mean that, but the, is it perfect timing because there's all these discussions about taking down statues and changing names of streets and towns and schools and everything. And so there's momentum, or do you think it's, tough timing because there's some people who are now saying enough, like we're, we're going to eventually have to change everything. We have to be able to accept some things here and not erase all of our history. I, I think it's a little of each. Um, I, I think uh, it is, the timing is good in the sense that people are open to thinking critically about symbols. I'm often reminded of that uh, image of fish not knowing it, that the water exists because they constantly are in the water. So sometimes this is the water in which we swim. And people are now being aware and thinking critically about these issues. It is also actually, I think, pretty bad timing um, because, one, there's a lot of fatigue out there. And people are unfortunately um, kind of connecting this one particular ask of you know changing a shared public symbol to, you know, the things out there that they might phrase as cancel culture. And I think that's missing the point, because this is not pressuring a private institution, you know, to rename themselves. This is saying, look, here's a symbol that is not a voluntary symbol. This is a symbol that we all share, um, and it's a public symbol of a democratic state. So the only way we can change that is to petition our state. And that the idea of citizens petitioning their state well, that's older than democracy, right? It's sure. not a, sure. it's not something, it's not a millennial invention, at least not if you count this millennium. <laughs> um, so one of the things that you've alluded to, and I know it's been said by other people talking about this, is that this flag, this flag that we're talking about doesn't represent the modern Ontario. We've, we, we're, we're a different place than we were 40, 50 years ago. Like, I mean, every place changes. We've changed. And so maybe the flag has to change. The question would be, if we do change the flag now, we're going to change more in the future. That's just, that's how societies work. Things are going to change. Are we not essentially saying that in a few years, we're going to have to change it again and then change it again and then change it again as we continue to evolve as a province? I don't think that's a very sustainable argument, only for the reason that 
the specific reason that we're changing the flag is that it's a callback and a celebration of a colonial state, which I think we would all agree is not uh, a desirable you know, state for the world to be in. And we are asking that it be changed to something that is distinct and inclusive and sustainable. So if you create a flag that doesn't represent just a section of the population, but the population as a whole, uh, then it, it can continue for a very long time. Uh, many flags have, uh, and I think the Canadian flag is one of the flags that will continue to do so, and Ontario should be held to that high standard. The interesting thing is the awareness of this is not at all new. So George Stanley, who designed the Canadian flag back in 64, wrote in his memo uh, that it's inadvisable for a purely Canadian flag to include obvious national symbols, such as the Union Jack. So this has been, you know, if you create a thoughtful flag the way the Canadian flag was, that flag is going to last for a long time, and it's going to be beloved and iconic, and it's going to represent the province well. I, now, there's a group of you that are have researched this and looked into it and written the report, and I understand that as part of that report, there have been, correct me if I'm wrong, but there have been some possible designs or ideas for what could make up a new Ontario flag, right? I think the report you're referring to was long before my time, but I have seen it. Uh, and yes, I think it did have uh, some proposals, um, the best way... Like- like yes, what? Certainly. What would be something? What would be something that would be that would fit the criteria that you're talking about? That we would be able to do? That would be inclusive and make everybody happy and be able to be long lasting. I think it's um, less about what it includes and more about what it excludes. I think anything that excludes a very specific symbol that only attaches itself to one culture or anything that you know attaches itself to any one religion, for example, uh, will be sufficient. Um, I don't have a particular uh, design that I'm pushing forward, partly because I'm sure somebody else can do a much better job than I can. Um, (laughs) But I will say that in this country and also in other countries, there have been successful examples of making that change. So I'm confident that we can handle uh, that process. It's a fascinating discussion. Um, I don't know. You're up to a, a couple thousand signatures now on this petition. I think it's it's uh, you're getting some traction on this one. It's a it's a really interesting discussion, and uh, I'm sure we will he- be hearing about this down the road for sure. Again, uh, Mano Majumder, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for taking it. Thank you very much. What do you think? What do you think about the idea of changing the Ontario flag? Does he have a point? Is the idea that we have the Union Jack in the Ontario flag. Is the time for that past? Is it an antique flag that needs to be changed? Or do you look at it and say, no, it's tradition and it's what we've had for decades now and we don't need to be changing everything. We're already arguing about changing enough stuff. I, I have a feeling there's going to be arguments on both sides to this one. That it's time for something different and that I'm getting really tired of every single thing from the past being told that it is wrong or racist or inappropriate or past its prime or past its time or whatever else. An interesting discussion to be had there for sure. Send me a note, by the way, if you uh, if you have thoughts on this one, radley at 900chml.com. Radley, R-A-D-L-E-Y, radley at 900chml.com. Would love to hear your take on whether it's time for a new Ontario flag. 
You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Scott Radley in for Scott Thompson on the Scott Thompson Show today. Yes, scotchy, scotch, scotch, scotch. We're going to be talking about, I'm not sure that our guest would speak of it as quite scotchy, scotch, scotch. It's a little less serious than some would take it about. Today is National Scotch Day, so we're going to talk about scotch a little bit. It is also the eve of NHL free agency. Lots of discussion, lots of trades, a big trade today. Big, big trade today. We'll tell you about it. But yes, it is um, it is National Scotch Day, which for some of you is a day of great celebration. For others of you, you don't get it at all and you don't even know why we're talking about it. But it's one of those things. I, I've learned by talking to people over the years Scotch is one of those things that you are either all in or couldn't care less. But the people who are into Scotch, it's it's like cigars kind of that for a while there anyway. It was there was a real absolute buy-in if you are into this. Beth Havers uh, is not only a Scotch expert, and a few years ago, she was the World Whiskey Ambassador in Whiskey Magazine. She is an expert in the world of whiskey and scotches. She joins us now. Beth, thanks for doing this today. Hello, how are you? I am fantastic, and I really appreciate you doing this. Although I must say this, it's it's a little ironic, and I, I, I don't want to sound sexist right off the top, although I probably will for a second here, but... It scotch has always kind of been seen, I think, as a man's drink until more recently. So it's kind of interesting that you have that I'm talking to you and that you have found your way into this world. Am I wrong or has this always kind of been seen as a guy's drink? I think historically, when you think of the word like scotch, I think a lot of people have associated that with men. But women are definitely uh, now very much a part of all things whiskey. There's tons of female distillers. There's many whiskey ambassadors that represent different brands brands that are females as well. So we are definitely here for all of the whiskey. <laughs> mm. Well, it, it seems like whiskey, scotch, all of this, it, it's having a bit of a moment. I just talked about cigars. There was a few years ago when, you know, cigars where everybody was into cigars. Now it seems scotch and whiskey are the thing that people want to learn about and experiment with and try is am i right is it kind of having its moment right now absolutely i would say all whiskey across the board uh we're seeing quite the increase in popularity and in sales whereas like if we look to a decade ago you know vodka was kind of the spirit of choice and now we're definitely seeing that whiskey is what people are turning to and why on it like I think that people have just become a lot more educated in what they're drinking um, and not to say that there's anything wrong with any spirits, but I think people are very curious. And because whiskey is such a magical spirit in the sense that in Scotland, for example, for single malts, it's all made of the same ingredients, but from distillery to distillery, it can change vastly. So it's, uh, it's kind of fun to be able to, you know, go through different, areas and different regions in Scotland and kind of taste the difference and really kind of experience what you you want to out of out of whiskeys that way. I, I must also say, and I mean, we're all suckers for this to some degree if we're not experts. I think the whiskey in the Scotch industry has done a magnificent job in recent years in promoting and hyping and creating a, a sense that you're missing out on something if you're not involved. Absolutely. We're seeing a ton more advertisements. We're seeing a lot more cocktail development on the whiskey side as well. 
Um, but yes, I think that definitely companies out there, like as far as marketing goes and everything that way, um, they're doing a really great job in creating a lot of excitement around it. I want to get into that in just a second, but just before we do, as I said, we're talking about this because today is National Scotch Day, and I was reading a few things online that um, the, the scotches of the year have been chosen in a number of publications, and the, the best scotches that are out there for the year shouldn't, I mean, I know that each distillery, as you say, is has different things, but shouldn't year by year, shouldn't the best scotch still be the best scotch? Why would they change year after year? Why would there be a different winner all the time if it's the same thing from each different distillery? Yeah, I hear what you're saying. And I think that that is such a subjective question. So I often don't listen to the, oh, we were named Scotch of the Year, because like that could be your Scotch of the Year, but not necessarily somebody else's. So I always suggest that people really experiment within the whole world of Scotch and kind of pick their Scotch of the Year and and not really rely a lot on different what publications say. I think it's really up to the personal um, consumer what they're going to experience from that with because some of these whiskeys, you know, somebody might say this is the best whiskey in the world and you might not like it. So it's kind of, a, I think it's very much a personal journey as to what whiskeys you like. I well, I, I remember. Try as many as you can. <laughs> yeah. And I remember two or three years ago, right around Christmas time, which was it? It was a Canadian rye whiskey that was named the whiskey of the year. Um, yeah. Crown Royal Northern Harvest. Crown Royal. Right. And then everybody, I mean, you could not find one at the LCBO. I mean, everybody had to go and buy one of these. And then the next year, suddenly it's not the best whiskey of the year. And I'm like, well, what happened to it? Did they change the recipe? Is it new Coke? What happened here? But no, it's the same thing. It's just someone else with a different palate, I guess, decided they like something else better. Yeah. And that's, and as I say, like, I think that all whiskeys have their place and time and moments and everything. So I really suggest that people experiment for themselves and see what they like to do um, and what kind of whiskeys they turn to. Because as I say, like it could be one year, the scotch, everyone's talking about a scotch that's made in Isla in Scotland and that's really smoky and peaty. And that might not be the type of whiskey that you like. You might like something on the fruitier side. So you're, you're better to stick with a space side whiskey or a Highland whiskey because you're going to get the flavors that you like from that particular region and not necessarily the smoky tea stuff. The one thing I will say for whiskey that I think may have some people a little nervous is that it can be intimidating because you hear experts who talk about their flavor notes that they are picking out of this. They'll describe it. And, you know, I read one, I read one the other day, I was was getting ready, uh, that was, it has a touch of mashing cereal and then in a positive way, enamel paint. And I'm thinking, wait, who, who is, who is tasting this and who knows what enamel paint tastes like and then can pick that. And it's a very, it can be very intimidating when you hear experts talk about this because I sip it and I think, hmm, tastes like whiskey. Yes. And that's very much like the power of suggestion when it comes to tasting notes. And again, when I do these whiskey tastings, it's been really kind of an interesting world of whiskey tasting called being virtual lately. But I really try and encourage that conversation of what other people are tasting and what other people are smelling. Because, you know, right off the bat, if you're not used to nosing a whiskey, you're like, oh, this smells a lot like alcohol. Like, I don't know what else to kind of categorize it as. Um, and then you kind of like, okay, well, you know, do you kind of get some fruits? What fruits might they be? And, um, you know, especially when it comes to some of those, um, again, Isla whiskeys, that smoky, um, kind of character, people can characterize that in many different words. Like they're like iodine or turpentine or what I like. And, and it's kind of funny what, what people come up with, 
Um, but yeah, there's all these interesting word descriptions um, of, of what people might taste in a whiskey. But I really think that it's it's kind of fun to try the different ones, get, give your own tasting notes, and kind of break down those barriers. Because uh, I, I do know that like a lot of people do find it intimidating. But I think the more people kind of try and experiment and the, the more used to it they get, then you kind of break down those barriers for yourself. So if I, if I were to sample a whiskey and if I, if I hear someone, if I'm sitting next to you and you say, you know, I, I can pick up the flavors of, I don't know, saddle leather with cardboard shavings mixed, mixed <laughs> with an overripe apricot and sweat from a man's pickup basketball game at the Y and I get none of that. Am I just a complete simpleton in a room with no palate or is it very much subjective where either you're really, really, really sensitive to this or you're making it up <laughs> to sound really good? <laughs> I think that, well, I, I would love to come up with those tasting notes. Those are really, really great. But again, it's totally like everybody doesn't have the same palate. Everyone doesn't have the same notes. Like your senses are all going to be different. So what you get is what you get. Uh, and I think that often when you read the back of a bottle or whatever, those are just kind of light suggestions of what you might get as far as taste profile goes. So it might kind of guide you in the right direction as far as purchasing goes. Um, like, okay, if it's going to taste like X, Y, Z, I might not like those flavors, so I better steer away. But I think once you open that bottle, then you should leave it entirely up to you as to what you get. And it's, and it's fun to share these, like whiskey is meant to be shared and whiskey is always a great discussion point. So sharing whiskey with somebody else and actually starting that conversation and kind of having that dialogue, like, oh, I can, I, I'm tasting this and I'm tasting that. And that always kind of is a fun way to see what like how much different, like how different we can be when it comes to our palate and our nose and everything. So yeah, what I get may not be what you get. Or maybe once I suggest a word, you'd be like, oh yes, I do taste dry. Power of suggestion, right. Yeah, or whatever. For sure. Yeah. The, the other thing about it that can be very intimidating, I think, is that if you, if you go to the store, to the liquor store, there is a wall of whiskeys of amazing different variety of not only labels, but prices. And I think most people assume that a much more expensive bottle has to taste much, much better. And you're, it's kind of embarrassing to walk up to the counter with your $12 bottle of whatever else. And, you know, thinking that I'm, again, I'm such a, a simpleton that I'm buying this swill that is going to, it may be delicious to you, but it's the, the idea that expensive must be better. Yeah, and that's definitely not the case because, again, it's all such a personal experience of what you like, and price does not matter. Age definitely doesn't matter. Um, different distilleries are, are doing experimenting in different ways with different cask types and that sort of thing, and we're kind of seeing that whiskey doesn't necessarily need to be aged for 15 years to be a great whiskey. You can have a whiskey that's younger, like um, Ardbeg's five-year-old is a good example of this. Like this is a five-year-old whiskey that was recently released. And it's amazing to see what can come from a, a great quality whiskey after just five years spent in cask. And we see like, uh, especially when they're, they're coming from that particular region. But yes, you kind of see, all, and then you see whiskeys with no age expression whatsoever. Like so there's, there's no, there's a name to it and not like a 10-year-old statement. Um, but what that particular distillery has done with different cask types, um, you know, has really affected the taste and flavor of the whiskey. So, again, price does not necessarily mean quality. You might not be somebody who really likes older whiskeys. You know, they might be too um, 
tannic or something like that um, not up to your palate. So again, it's unfortunate, like in the normal world, we could go to whiskey shows and try different whiskeys. But I often recommend that people reach out to like, there's a ton of wealth of, there's a wealth of information out there, even in Canada with different brand ambassadors and reaching out to those brand ambassadors and see if they can get in on a sampling that they might be doing. Or, you know, I, I host tastings all the time. So I really welcome people to reach out to me um, and, you know, get in on a tasting where you can have the opportunity to try a few different expressions um, and judge for yourself what you, what kind of area you want to explore more. But you mentioned the power of suggestion and I read something a few months ago and I thought it was fascinating and they had done blind tastings with people who knew their whiskey. Like these were not just Joe Blow off the street who'd never had whiskey before. These were people who knew their way around and they did blind tastings where they told them that whiskey A was really expensive or really old and whiskey B wasn't. And almost every single time the one they believed to be older and believed to be more expensive, they gave higher grades to, even though they may have been completely fooled and it was the opposite. There's a real power of suggestion too. Oh, I completely agree. Yes. And I think that that's something like, like that we probably do subconsciously, you know, when, Oh, Oh really? Oh, it's 15 years old. That must mean it's really, really good. Or it's 20 years old. That must mean it's really, really good and more expensive and that sort of thing when it's definitely not, not the case. I love doing blind tastings because it's really interesting to see what people think of it. And then you say, huh, okay, that was actually like a non-age dated whiskey. They're like, you know, the average year might be 10 years old, but that was your favorite out of the bunch when you tried a 15, a 20, a 25 year old or whatever. And, you know, you can kind of see that the number on the bottle doesn't necessarily really matter. Yeah, so when when Beth Havers creates her own distillery and her own whiskey, the secret here then is even if it's only cost $2 a bottle to make it, charge $500 a bottle and everybody <laughs> will think it's the greatest whiskey ever. I don't want, I, I actually wouldn't do that because I think that creates, again, it creates a barrier um, for people. Like they're like, I, I would love to make a whiskey that was accessible to everyone um, so they can really explore what they want to explore um, and get a chance to try the whiskeys that I produce in a magical land one day when I actually <laughs> have a chance to do that. It would be really fun to make a, like a great whiskey and that very accessible prices. Yeah. And there was, there was a, a, a sale. I think this is what got me looking at that study. Uh, several months ago, the LCBO, I think got a bottle that was $85,000. It was oh, one yeah. of, you know, a few in the world and they were selling this. And I don't even know if it's sold. I don't know who has $85,000 to b spend on a bottle of whiskey that probably they would never open. Um, or they've got way too much money if they do. Um, nonetheless, it's, you would think that's got to be the greatest whiskey of all time because it's the most expensive. And I, I'm with you. I bet you that if you did a blind tasting of 10 average people, not all 10 would have picked that one as their favorite. Yeah, it would be really interesting to see how that one would stand up. But that's a, another interesting point about whiskey and the prices. You know, that whiskey 10 years ago would have been a fraction of that. So a lot of people, what they're doing now in the whiskey world is they're actually investing in whiskey. So they're, they're buying it to not necessarily open, but they're buying it for their, like, for futures. Because it's a, a safer bet in, in cases where the wine, because wine, you know, it might get corked. Um, whereas whiskey, as long as you don't open it, you store it in a dry, cool place. Um, it's not going to change in the bottle. It's not going to spoil in the bottle. Um, and the value of these whiskeys, especially when they come from reputable distilleries, 
um, it just continues to increase. So they've seen we've seen a 288 percent increase in the like in the value of whiskey over the past five to ten years. Uh, so that they really actually make for really great investments as well. Okay, so we got to run here, but I'm going to give you uh, an opportunity to help us out here, those of us who are not experts uh, and who, again, it's a little intimidating. We want to go to a bar or we want to go to a store and, and get a whiskey, but we don't want to sound like we're idiots, that we don't know what we're doing. What What are the code words? What are the things that you can do or say to sound like, to sound like we know what we're talking about? I always recommend that people drink their whiskey meat. Um, when it, so no when ice? Not necessarily, yeah, if, if it's hot out, sure, put it on ice. But first, try it, sip it on its own. Then if you want to, add some water, because water, um, you know, when we actually take samples from um, barrels at the distillery, we dilute it down to about 30%. So the, the master blender would dilute it down to 30% before they um, nose it and tasted it, because um, that will totally change the, the whiskey, and it will really open things up. And I always recommend that people speak. We have such talented bartenders every, at every establishment. And because people have not been working, they're, they're very eager to talk about their knowledge. So, you know, if you're, you're nervous about what to order, always just ask your bartender what they would recommend. And, you know, say, I like things that are sweet. And they can definitely point you in the right direction. Um, but, yes, first try it neat. Add some water. Add some ice afterwards. But always try it just on its own first. That is Beth Havers. You can follow her on Twitter at WhiskeyBeth. It's an appropriate uh, Twitter handle for sure. Uh, really appreciate you doing this. Thanks for doing this today. Thank you so much. I hope you have a wonderful Scotch day, everyone, and definitely get out and enjoy a dram. I really appreciate your time. By the way, just talking about Scotch with Beth Havers there, Beth has a company called Aunt Beth Bakes. She her company has a setup at Westdale Farmer's Market today from four till seven and an Ancaster at the Farmer's Market tomorrow selling her whiskey cookies. So we're talking whiskey and who doesn't like cookies? If you want to get some, you can find them Westdale Farmer's Market today, Ancaster tomorrow. So there you go. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to three on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.